I'm Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 77 of Carol Pop. Our guest this week is a singer-songwriter who specializes in smart, undeniable guitar pop songs, Marshall Crenshaw. His ebullient, self-titled 1982 album is one of the rock era's outstanding debuts, featuring such tuneful, instantly indelible songs as Someday, Someway, Cynical Girl, and There She Goes Again. My college's band would play Marianne at football halftime shows, and the album hadn't even been out that long. Even the B-side of Someday, Someway, the tongue-in-cheek, You're My Favorite Waste of Time, was great, and that came out only as a four-track demo. Crenshaw grew up in the Detroit area and absorbed that city's musical scene as he envisioned himself as a guy with a guitar fronting a rock band. But first, he played John Lennon in touring and West Coast productions of the Broadway musical Beatlemania. In this conversation from his New York home, Crenshaw says whether Beatlemania was more of an acting or a musical job for him, and how that experience came to an abrupt end. And if you're a Sopranos fan, your mind may be blown as he reveals which vicious killer from that HBO series played Ringo on stage. Did Crenshaw always see himself as a solo artist versus a singer-songwriter in a band? How did he link up with Warner Brothers and producer Richard Goderer, who recently had overseen the Go-Go's debut, Beauty and the Beat? Does his beef with his debut album Sound lie more in the mix or the mastering? Steve Lillywhite, who had produced XTC, U2, and Peter Gabriel, brought a more booming sound to Crenshaw's second album, Field Day. It contains such classic Crenshaw songs as Whenever You're On My Mind, Why did Crenshaw choose Lily White? Does Crenshaw feel like that album's production has gotten a bad rap? Those first two albums constitute phase one of Crenshaw's career. Artistic triumphs unaccompanied by massive commercial success. Someday Someway remains Crenshaw's sole U.S. Top 40 single, which is nuts. For his next three Warner Brothers albums, he was in a different mindset as he felt sales and label pressure. T-Bone Burnett produced the Rootsier 1985 album Downtown, which includes Little Wild One, Number 5, and Blues Is King. Mary Jean and Nine Others, produced by Don Dixon and featuring the single This Is Easy, followed in 1987. By the time of his dispirited label farewell, Good Evening, Crenshaw wasn't writing much and half the album was covers. 1991's Life's Too Short, produced by Ed Stasian, was a bounce-back album, leading off with another strong single that wasn't a hit, Better Back Off. viewed a Chicago show on that tour and was wowed by the hard-hitting attack of Crenshaw and his band, which included Mitch Easter. Crenshaw's perceptive melodic songwriting continued over three studio albums for the indie label Razor and & Tie and his most recent studio album, 2009's Jagged Land, on 429 Records. His one commercial breakthrough over that period was co-writing the Gin Blossoms 1995 top 10 hit, Till I Hear It From You. Crenshaw still performs on his own and has been the live guest vocalist with the Smithereens following the death of its lead singer, Pat Denizio. Have he and the Smithereens tried writing any songs together? Is he writing songs on his own? Does he ever expect to record another album? I saw Crenshaw perform solo at WXRT's Cubs opening day broadcast in 2019, so it's fitting that this carol pop conversation is going up on Cubs opening day 2023. He hits this one out of the park. Enjoy. Do you write songs all the time or do you write songs when you have a project to write them for? I've not written songs all the time. Never have done, except for this one 
period of time when I did go on a big creative binge for the first time in my life. That lasted about a year and a half. When and even then, you know, it was I was doing it because I had a a tape machine and I wanted to make recordings, and I just had this feeling that uh it was time when was this year and a half binge was that early on or sometime in the no middle? it was about 1979 into 1980 and maybe a little bit into 81 rough it's roughly in that time frame yeah it was a t- it was the time period leading up to my first album started when i was in beatlania you were john I lennon was, and uh, you, yeah. were, you were like an understudy in broadway and then west coast and the touring company i think yeah that's great. I'm glad that that's like started to sink in with people because uh, I've seen, you know, he was in the off Broadway show, Beatlemania, you know, different things. But that's correct. I was just, it was an understudy for six months and then West Coast and then touring company for about a year. And during all, and during that time, I just started to con- conspire with myself. You Did know? being inundated with all those Beatles songs seep into your songwriting i mean certainly those early songs you're writing were incredibly tuneful so that would make some sense i don't think that being in beatlemania had anything to do with what i came up with as an artist the part of about being in beatlemania that did influence my behavior then was just being around other guys my age like guys like rob lawfer was one guy who's a californian and uh Glenn Burtnick was another one who went on to mm. do a lot of stuff. A guy named yeah. Robert Miller. He was really interesting because uh, he was a drummer, but then uh, taught himself to play guitar so he could audition for Beatlemania. And uh, that really made my jaw drop because I've been trying to play guitar my whole life. And here comes this guy who learns it in six months and can play all the stuff in Beatlemania. But anyhow, Robert Miller he went out to become like an orchestral composer and uh, has done all kinds of things, field like film scoring and writing commercials that are on, on during the Super Bowl. Anyway, there were a handful of guys who were really uh, interesting and, and it, you know, you could I could see that they were ambitious and focused and that just kind of made me think, about myself, you know, and what I should be doing. But I mean, I mean, the music I came up with was like a sum total of everything that was in my head and that was around me. And that was a whole lot more than just the Beatles, you know? Right. Yeah, obviously. Was Beatlemania more of a musical job or an acting job? It was an acting job and a musical job for sure. And in fact, that's another person who was in it with me, a guy named Al Sapienza was in Beatlemania at the same time I was. And, and I was even even in a company with him and a band with him. And he was never a musician, you know. He learned how to play the drums, you know, and could play the stuff that he needed to play to be in Beatlemania. But he later went on. He was uh, Mikey Palmisi during the first season of The Sopranos. Oh, wow. And I remember when they killed him off, I'm like, oh, don't do that to him. Don't take away his gig like that. He was a mean bastard, Mikey. Yeah, he got killed at the end of the first season. But anyway, that's Al. Very colorful character. And he was a Ringo in Beatlemania. It was the most far-fetched. It was utterly far-fetched in every way, but he just saw an opportunity and grabbed it. But, you know... So there were guys like that. There were guys who just kind of drifted into it. Some people were into it because they were just Beatle fanatics. And that's all they cared about or thought about. It really was a mixed bag of different people, but a handful of really serious music talents that I crossed paths with, too, you know. Did you discover that you liked, I mean, you probably knew this already, but that you liked the music part more than the acting part? Well, I I didn't like the acting part. I just like didn't want any, you know, it wasn't my thing at all. And I was terrible at it and ill-suited for it. But I, you know, I got, I got in the show and it, it really opened lots of doors in my life. Not specific kind of business do- door, you know, it just changed my life a lot when I got in it. So it was a really good thing for me. But eventually you- I, I, I quit, you know, because... Uh, I kept getting warnings. One time the stage 
manager confronted me and he was, he really reamed me out. He was a Broadway guy, you know, and he could see that I didn't have like any kind of Broadway work ethic that he thought, you know, somebody in that show should have attacked me verbally and threatened to have me fired and stuff. And, but I ignored him. I didn't, I wasn't going to do what he wanted me to do. And then later on, another person kind of nudged me like, you know, you're, you're in a precarious position here, but that guy was a friend of mine, still is a good friend of mine. And I thought, okay, I got to go. It's time. What were they nudging you to do? There was this bit in the show. It's, you know, I should have just done it, but you know, I didn't <laughs> want, I didn't want to, but there was this bit in the show where you were supposed to kind of talk in this cute beetle way and with your in fake English accent and stuff like that. I just let the other guys, you know, I didn't want to humiliate myself. It's so, it's so stupid. What, what was going on in my head? You know, I don't know. It's just like a contrarian, I guess. Did you spend a lot of time working up your liver accent for that? No, I didn't. I mean, I just, I barely tried and I just thought, no, I sound like a, I sound silly. I, you know, I can't do it. So I would just let the other guys do that stuff. <laughs> I mean, no, I see, I, I just, I was kind of lucky to get the job, I guess. But when I got in the West Coast company, it was because somebody had gotten hurt in that company and they needed to send an understudy. And there were two of us in New York. I could play the guitar solo to get back and the other guy couldn't play it. So I got sent. Well, there you go. Well, you know, and you, you wound up having having a bit of musical talent for that show as well. So like you're the most famous alumnus from that. Despite the crap you got from these these people, you're the one people get, you know, Marshall Crenshaw was in that show. Like you're the you're the alumnus. I suppose so. But again, there are other people that went out and accomplished stuff in the world, too. Besides I'm me. still blown away that Mikey from The Sopranos was Ringo. That, that is, gonna, that's a wild one. Yeah, definitely. I'm not going to get over that all day. I'm going to be like. Dude, did you know this? That's Ringo. <laughs> so you grew up in the Detroit area. I read that you had a high school band called Astigfa, which stood stood for A Splendid Time is Guaranteed for All. <laughs> so, you, so you had a Beatles thing going on before Beatlemania. Oh, sure. I, I, I love them. Yeah, I, I, I still do. Growing up, were you? did you feel like being in Detroit? Were you exposed to Detroit music at the time? Were you like listening to... Beatles? Were you already into Buddy Holly and earlier stuff? Like what was your, what were your sort of formative musical things going on in suburban Detroit? Well, yeah, I was exposed to Detroit stuff. No, most certainly. I mean, it was, uh, it was, that was the only thing I knew, right? I, I never went anywhere else until I got out of high school. Really. I, I never was on the other side of the Mississippi river until I was about 24 uh so yeah it was you know the detroit area was the whole world as far as i knew i mean as far as what my own experience was you know but uh let me see rock and roll music was the soundtrack of my family life and uh, because my it was the music my dad listened to which was unusual for somebody from his age group at that time it was completely off the wall in fact but uh, this, this was weird like when he was dying, like he had, he had saved up a bunch of stuff to, that he wanted to tell me <laughs> that he'd never told me before. And one of them was that he grew up in a black neighborhood and his family lived in a black neighborhood till the, he was 12 years old. I don't know why that was the secret, but he told me. But that's where his musical taste was coming from always, you know. And uh, anyway, he listened to the rock and roll station probably because... He couldn't get the R&B station. The R&B stations in Detroit that I remember, like WCHB and whatever the other one was, their signal dropped off as soon as you crossed Eight Mile Road. Huh. You, you couldn't get the black stations out of Detroit. And that's kind of symbolic right there. But anyway, uh, so I heard rock and roll in my life. I had cousins that I was really close to. It was a big, close-knit family neighbors down the street you know i just heard the music and fell in love with it you know i just was a fan from then on and uh interested in it i was like on the path of the music as soon as i as far back as i can remember you know and there was always a lot of local and regional stuff detroit very much has its own character uh, its own singularity you know always has so yeah i just you know 
soaked up whatever I could soak up. One of my favorite history books of the city of Detroit and one of my favorite books about popular music is a great big book that came out about three, four years ago about this record, Fortune Records, which is really a quintessential Detroit record label as much as Motown. I think Fortune only had the national hits, but locally they were kind of a big deal. And uh, that's a real Detroit label. And they, they just put out, they put out hillbilly music, they put out black music, they put out polkas and stuff from the Middle East. Uh, it's a, kind of a real mom and pop operation. Yeah, I don't know Fortune Records. Well, one of their national hits was um, one called Village of Love by Nathaniel Mayer. You know, you can find that one. There was a local hit that they had called Mind Over Matter by Nathaniel Mayer, which is one of the best rock and roll records ever made. And then they had a written a national R and B hit with one called Bacon Fat by Andre Williams. I love There's, that. Their stuff is wild, you know. And uh, anyway, Detroit music it just goes on and on. Oh, the early Motown stuff too. I really loved like Playboy by the Marvelettes and What's So Good About Goodbye by the Miracles and all that early stuff. I loved the DJs would play it and really, really talk it up. Jack Scott was another guy. He was a big rock star in the 50s. He was a Detroit guy. His name is kind of forgotten now, but he was really, uh, he was right up there back in back in my childhood. When you first picked up a guitar, did you were you thinking, I want to do this, like I want to perform, or was it more like I just want to learn an instrument? I made up my mind at some that I was going to pursue a life, you know, that was centered around popular music. I, I made up my mind early as a little kid and rock and roll specifically. That was, you know, it's funny, but that's what happened. You know, was there any moment that inspired that or was it just a general like you just sort of had that feeling and you're like, all right, let's do it. It was a lot of stuff. You know, I just I just love the music. The other thing was the kind of the kind of kid I was, you know, I had like a bullshit detector. Like I could tell that a lot of adults around me were really dumb. <laughs> but, you know, I was taught to defer to them and follow the rules that they made and all that, you know, and that was kind of a drag sometimes. And, you know, rock and roll was like an alternative or an antidote to that, you know. It's just like I could, I could see that it was that it was a it was coming from an interesting world, <laughs> and uh, so that was another reason. It just suited me, you know. It's just like I I was just drawn to it because of the music and just because of what it was what it seemed to represent to me. What was the first song you ever wrote? First one I ever wrote. Oh, I can't. I don't know. I mean, I would just kind of make up stuff in my head. If I was sitting in my desk in school, I might just be making up some some song. But the first song I wrote, uh, I wrote one called "Summer's Over." I don't know. I, I never make- really, I never really got serious about songwriting, honestly, until that creative binge period that I mentioned before. That was right. really when I. Uh, that was when I really sat down and said, "Okay, now I'm doing it. I'm gonna." create this body of work because I know what I want it to be. That's when that happened. And you were like in your mid twenties by that point, right? Yeah. I was in early twenties, um, 24, 23, something like that. When you were writing your first songs, would you, were you sitting there with a guitar? Were you sitting with a pad of paper? Did you write lyrics first? Did stuff come into your head like hooks? And then you sort of had to figure out a way to record them, to remember them. Like which, which was, what was your process? Yeah. Yeah. It would always be the guitar, no other instrument. I never write the words first. The whole reason I'm doing the songwriting is so I'll have something to play on my guitar basically. So that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get a vehicle together for myself to play guitar and make a record. But anyhow, yeah, I, I write, I use, I use my guitar and I write a song. So far, so I have. I mean, you know, I, I think now and then about, you know, what if I got a keyboard? <laughs> and what if I started writing songs again? Should I get a keyboard? I don't know. I'm not, I can't play the key. I'm a guitar player, you know, you could say. And uh, 
like, you know, I can't play keyboard, but neither was, I mean, neither was Brian Wilson. He wasn't really a piano player. Whenever you see him play the piano, it's always either eighth notes or 16th notes in the right hand. And then whatever's going on in the bass line still is it's eighth notes or quarter notes or whatever, but harmonically is, is where it's incredible, you know? Right. But, but you can see that he's not really a piano player. He's, a, he's got this way of composing where he plays this really crude style of piano, but it's in his head, you know, the harmonies and everything. The key with him is he seems to have like this, these arrangements and things in his head. And then he has to sort of figure out how to download them to the wrecking crew or whoever he's working with to try to get them to sort of translate what he knows he wants it to sound like. Yeah. I'd really like to know more about all that. I mean, I'm sure I could find out it's probably on the internet, but like there's this one thing I've listened to maybe five or 10 times on YouTube and it's the entire tracking session for California girls. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have the song finished, but he's got the changes and he's got the track, you know, he can make the backing track. So he wants to go in the studio and do that right away. Cause that's what he, what he loves, you know? And, uh, when he's first like slating the takes, he doesn't have the song title either. And he, like a couple times he says, okay, uh, here we go. I'm a power mower, your grass, take three. <laughs> and I don't know, he's just making up these funny titles for the different takes. They get up to like 72 takes finally. Anyway, you can hear the saxophones. And I'm like, okay, uh, so, he had a, so he had an arranger or, or did he? Did he do it himself? Not sure, you know. But. So going back to your songwriting, so like, like say something like Cynical Girl. So are you sitting at the guitar sort of coming up with the changes and then at some point you've got the music and then you have to start figure out what the song's about? Yeah, that's it. You know, with that one and with most of them, I think to, to go back to Brian Wilson for a second, I'm not sure if he always got the top line melody is the same at the same time that he got like the harmonic bed of it, you know, the, the chords and then so forth. I, I think that maybe with him, the melody, the top line melody came later. Not sure. But anyway, with myself, you know, not, not that I'm comparing myself to him, but you know, with me, I would have the top line melody and the chord changes. So with cynical girl, it was just take away the words, you know, everything, but the words I've got it, you know, in the moment when I'm writing it. And then, uh, you know, the the words came after the fact. First, I asked this other guy to write some words for me. <laughs> and uh, I didn't like the ones he wrote. I would do that. And then I, that would that was my way of learning that, you know, I, I wasn't going to be happy with it unless I did it myself. Right. For, for better or worse, you know, I wasn't going to feel like the like the words fit the music the way I wanted them to. Unless I did it, I was the only one who could really do that right. Because that's what, you know, that was the key thing, is for the, the words to complement the music. Anyway, Cynical Girl, I don't know, it took me maybe a week later to, to get some words together. But then they started to come into my mind, and uh, I thought, this is funny, and this is like some humor in this, you know. I hate TV, all that stuff, you know. It gotta be somebody other than me. I'm like, this is crazy. These are crazy words for a rock and roll. Song. Well, and you're my favorite waste of time is the same sort of thing where it's, it like, is, it's, yeah. a, it's another love song, but it's sort of a love song. Like, yeah, you know, this is like, it's coming from an actual human being. It's not like generic because it's got a little twist in it. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's like, anyway, by the time it was all said and done, all the songs, you could say that, you know, there's a view, there's like a viewpoint in those songs and like a worldview kind of, I was surprised by that myself, but it just came out that way. I mean, when you look back on those songs, do they do you feel like they reflected what your actual mindset was at the time? I mean, were you looking for a cynical girl and you know <laughs> it's not no, it's not they're they're not always literally about a person or anything like that. You know, the point is just a uh, okay, I'm gonna now I'm gonna start quoting somebody else, but yeah, I really like what James Taylor said. Somebody was asking him, well, is this song about that person or is it about that time that you da da da? And he said, you know, really a song is about itself. And I thought, I just understood, you know, that that that, that made sense, you know, because you get like this 
spark of energy or inspiration and you think, okay, what's that? You know, and uh, you just try to actualize it without fucking it up. You know, you try to be true to that initial spark or that initial flash. That's your job. Like I said before, you know, the words have to, for me, they have to fit with the music and complement it, you know. The other day, I asked me about There She Goes Again. He said, well, what's that song about? And I, or is it about this? And I said, well, you're asking me what the words are about. What the song is about, for me in part, is, you know, it's this drumbeat that I borrowed from a record called Backfield in Motion by mm. Mel, and, Mel and Tim with eighth note triplets on the hi-hat. I started off with that beat. That was the beginning of the song for me. And that same beat is also um, on It's All Right by The Impressions, like a hardcore favorite of mine since I oh, yeah. heard it when I was nine years old. But it's just like a Chicago soul drum beat. So when you say, is that, is that, is there she goes again about this or about that? It's like there's more than just the, it's like the totality of it. You know, the words are just a part of the totality. But, you know, a lot of times there's like stuff about personal experience in the songs, my own personal experience. You know, you might get a bit of that might be something I grab from another song. It's just different things, you know, that you got to that I kind of shove in there. But, you know, they're good. I I, I think, you know, the words to to my songs are I have a, a like great respect for the the importance of good writing, you know, and I figure if you don't have good lyrics to a song, then the whole thing just completely sinks, you know? So yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you didn't find like some Bernie Taupin type to do your, because your lyrics are excellent and they, and they, and they reflect the songs. It all seems like it's all organic and it all sort of goes together. Like, and they're, they're excellent lyrics. So, you know. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, that's, that's the whole thing of it, you know, is when it's all said and done, it's supposed to be characteristic of me, you know, <laughs> right? Will her heart ever be satisfied? And there she goes again with another guy. It's a sad situation, but I know just what I ought to do. I'm gonna find someone better. So when you were imagining yourself, you know, recording this stuff, did you see yourself as solo artist Marshall Crenshaw getting musicians around who were complimentary, who would help you achieve your vision? Or did you see yourself in like a band in which you were like the lead guy or one of the two lead guys? And, and it was like the band that Marshall Crenshaw was in. That was another thing I finally understood is that I really had to do it myself. And I I didn't want anybody telling me anything about anything. You know, like I'd been in one band, you know, that was kind of like a supposed to be a democratic situation. And I finally just couldn't stand it anymore. And that was like one and done after that, you know, with all these different egos and viewpoints and stuff. And I'm like, forget it, you know. So then when I first started creating my own stuff, it was just my brother and I, my brother and me, I, me, me and my brother. Uh, <laughs> I think it was. I think it's my brother. It was. It was my brother and I. I think that's right. I think you had it right the first time. Yeah, that's right. I did it. My brother did it. My brother and I. I should call my mother. You know, she was a high school English teacher. But anyway, you got it right. Okay. Uh, it was just us, him and me. You know, and then sometimes it was just me by myself because I figured out how to overdub on my four track machine. And make it sound like a rock and roll record all by myself. But a lot of, you know, having him with me was was uh, a beautiful thing about it. You know, I realize now just how we shared this experience and how exciting it was for us to realize what we were doing. So that was important to have an ally. And then, of course, my other ally always is my wife. I've been with her forever. And uh, I, I'd be dead without her. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, as far as the music goes, I just realized that, you know, I had, well, to, you know, I can't think of any other way to put it, but I just realized, I understood that I had a vision, you know, I really did. Like I had, I, I just had this thing in my mind and I knew what it was and I had to just chase it all by myself. That's, 
that's how it went. You're my favorite waste of time. I've heard it's it's I think it's a four track recording that I've heard. I think that's what's out. Did you ever do a full studio version or is that one of those early ones you were doing with your brother or, or on your own? Yeah, that's one that I did at home, you know, and that's the only one anybody knows, except there was a live version on an album. But, you know, like, why would I redo it? That four track recording is is it, you know? Right. I don't need it to be any better than that. You know, that's, that's, it's good enough. I did it when the song was brand new and I was excited about it. I'm like, wow, I got a song, let's go. And uh, so it's got that kind of immediacy to it. And no, it's fine. You know, the other thing about those recordings that I made at home back then, even though I had cheap equipment, you know, they have highs, like actual highs. I, I just used like, Sure SM58s or and sure Unidynes. But you know, they they picked up like above 10k a little bit, I think. And there's bottom too. So there's like bottom and top and lots of stuff in the middle. I mean, they're good recordings, you know. I can't even believe it. They were just like done very much on the cheap, but they work for me. A couple of weeks ago, I saw this group in Chicago, a Chicago group, the Flat Five. Um, Kelly Hogan is in it, Nora O'Connor and Casey McDonough, and, you know, just people who are in NRBQ right now. Um, and they covered You're My Favorite oh, Waste yeah. of Time. I think it was the second song they did. In they the played that song? They played it. Just I just saw oh. them at the, you know, Evanston Space like two, three weeks ago. Oh, that's wonderful. I can't it, believe it. It sounded awesome. Oh, that's great. I'll, have to, I'll see if really they, nice. I'll see if anyone like put it on YouTube or anything and I'll ch- send it to you. But yeah, they have wonderful <sighs> harmonies in it. But I'm just I was just thinking, you know, you're like sitting at home coming up with this thing on four track. And now, you know what? Over 40 years later, you know, it's still getting played. And that song exists in the world in, in various forms. That song was a smash hit in uh, England and parts of Europe. That's maybe the song of mine that's made the most money over the years. Honestly. And like you said, it's just a silly little tune. I didn't I mean, say it was a silly little tune. I, I like it a lot. Maybe silly is not the right word, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like um, just this thing that I made up in my head one day. And yes, it has. It's had a really crazy long afterlife. Remarkable. So when you went into the studio for the first album, so you've gotten signed to Warner Brothers, you're doing your your self-titled eponymous uh, album with Richard Goderer, who who done a lot of kind of early '60s stuff and also just done the Go Go's album. Yeah. Uh, like, did he put together the band? Like, how much control did you have to relinquish for that record, and how much were you able to hold on to? Let me see. Before I worked with Richard, before I made the Warner Brothers album, I did a single on the Shake Records label. Something's going to happen. Yeah, with Alan Betrock. I mean, that's a darn good rock and roll record, I think, you know. And, uh, I agree. It's got a really great sound, you know, with real bottom-heavy kind of sound. I mean, I, you know, like I didn't want to give up any control, even when I worked with Alan. And Alan was on board with this, too. You know, he'd heard the home recording I made. And he said, well, we'll just remake that but we'll do it in this 24 track studio, you know, and on, on something's going to happen. We pulled that off, I think. And it's got all the same elements as the home recording I made. And then when I did my album, I just, I, I don't know. I, I think I felt under pressure right away. As soon as I got a record deal, I was having more fun before we got the record deal. But anyway, I, I didn't want to give up any control. Because, you know, up to that point, I, I had done everything myself and I, I was happy with the way that worked and also what it led to, you know, because, I mean, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have had a record deal without all those, those maybe a shame that I didn't have professional quality equipment when I did all that stuff, because then that could have been the record. But anywho, uh, Richard was really good. He had a lot of ideas. Uh, he wanted me to bring in uh, Will Lee and Anton Fig to play on the record, hmm. but I wouldn't do it. I just refused, to, you know, to, I wanted to have Robert and Chris because, you know, we, we really done uh, our thing in the clubs and that's, and we built, you know, we just built it up from the grassroots and uh, really blew it up good as a live band. And we were a really good live band. 
Right. Robert being your brother who you've been playing with for years. Yeah. So, you know, it was, uh, I wasn't going to entertain the idea of having, not having him play on the record. And the same way with Chris Donato either, you know, he, Chris was, uh, you know, somebody who'd been around, you know, he was in this band called Desmond Child and Rouge before he was in our band. I'm not sure if he played on their records or not, but, you know, I think he played on some records, but, you know, he could pull, he, he did it. I mean, he was, he could do it. I, I know Will Lee could have done it faster. Anton, I mean, Anton is great. I just played with him about three months ago. Will is great. They're both great, but, you know, I wanted the band, you know, we were the people that had made the whole thing happen. The right. three of us, me and those two guys. So anyway, that was one issue where I just was not going to budge. And uh, I managed, I got a co-production credit on the record. See, I've told this story a few times, but I, I started out trying to record myself and just kind of not being able to satisfy anybody, including myself. Part of the problem there was that I'd done the songs a couple other times in the studio, just for different reasons. Like maybe somebody asked me to, like a label, an A&R person asked us to go make demos for them. You know, I'd done the songs a bunch and I needed somebody. Richard came in and just he really had a lot of enthusiasm and, and all that stuff like that. But he also had an approach wanted me to use, which was uh, on each track, you know, he would he would say, OK, what we need. OK, now we got the drums, we got the bass. We do all that first. And you say, OK, go. Now you got to go out and put six rhythm guitars, six acoustic guitars on each track. And he would he called it thickening. You know, just give us a bed and then we'll put everything on top of that. And I didn't want to do any of that, but I did it because by that time I knew if I didn't just kind of help him and ha have him help me, that I was never going to get out of there. The <laughs> was never going to say yes to the record. You know, this, so that became the goal is just to get a, make a record. So it was a compromise on the first album. And then on the second album, I just said, I'm not this time. I, I told the producer and the engineer, I told them this time it's one guitar and maybe an overdub or a solo, but I'm not layering guitars. I'm not doubling vocals unless I want to do it. And that's field day, you know, it's yeah. just Steve Lillywhite, just guitar, bass and drums on each track. And the, it sounds amazing. Anyhow, the first album, I mean, you know, I love it and it's all good. And I still like Richard too. I just saw him a little while ago. It was nice. It was, you know, what was your reaction to hearing the record as like, here's my debut album and you're listening to it for the first time? Like, what was your reaction to it? Well, you know, I was I was really terrified the whole time during those early years. Honestly, there was a part of me that was just terrified and like didn't trust show business. <laughs> you know? So uh, and I, I went to the mastering session not knowing what mastering was, you know, like we finished and I was really hands-on with the mixing and everything like that. And we, and we got all of that done. And then I said, oh, great. Right. And then somebody said, well, now we have to master it. I said, what's that? Uh, but I went to the session, you know, and uh, the first thing I noticed was that they were starting to tweak it, you know, and they were like dumping out low end. Right. They're like, like the bottom is going away. And I'm like, well, what's going on with that? And then the guy said, well, Maybe the engineer or the producer said, well, we don't want the record to skip. And we, when it gets played on the radio, we want the mid range to jump out. So that's what, you know, that's what you did back then, I guess. And uh, so, I, I mean, I was aware of, aware of that when the record got put on vinyl, it was there were differences between that and what I heard in the control room. Interesting. When we did it, you know, it was because of the mastering, not the mix. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's just these are these are things that only I know, you know, this is this is how it was from my just my point of view, you know, but uh, but I, I do remember being in a car after a gig or before a gig or something like that. And, and a station in Philadelphia put the thing on and played the whole first side on the air. Wow. And I, yeah, that really it blew my mind. Yeah. To have a record out. It was, just, it was incredible, you know. It was fantastic. And you just went back to that record because there was a 40th anniversary 
edition that came out for record store day. And then Yep Rock has a, a CD version as well. Did you, did you tweak the mastering on those newer versions or is it the same? Yeah, we did. I did. And, uh, but I worked with Greg Calvi again. He was the guy who did it the first time and he's done all my records since then at that first session, even though, you know, I was, I was wrapping my mind around what mastering wasn't kind of going, Oh really? Jeez. But you know, at, at the same time, I'm bonding with him personally because he's just a very cool guy and I knew that he knew what he was doing. So we've worked together from then until now. But this time we we just kind of took a, a whole fresh because that you know it would have been dumb to try to just do it exactly the same way as before. He's got all different gear and it's many, many years later, and we're both older and wiser and everything like that. And it's a different culture around record making. You don't have to worry about See, when I at the first session, I remember Greg had a lathe over, you know, a disc cutting lathe against one wall in his room, you know, because he made you an acetate right there. There's no more of any of that. So um, we just went at it with fresh ears. And yeah, we did certainly did not dial the bottom out of it. Oh, no, nice. You know, there was no reason to. And uh, I like it better because I feel like. It's the way it was back then. It really needed it needs this needed the support from the band, you know. And now it's it it's there. I like it better now. When that album came out, I mean, it's again, you're you're doing a 40th anniversary version. It's like this beloved record. How did you feel sort of going from that into the second album? Did you feel like this boost of, hey, I'm 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 on a roll, or did you feel kind of nervous, like, hey, I'm I did really well. I wish it had sold better, or I wish I'd had more hit singles, or like like what was your mindset about it other than you'd done this really cool record? Well, like I said, you know, I I did have mixed feelings about my first album, but um, God, you know, it was a very chaotic time. It's a, you know, the business is really fast paced, very competitive. It was like, it was overwhelming to me and I didn't walk into it well prepared at all. It's like, I really refused at that time to take the business aspect of it seriously. I just couldn't, you know, and there was like a lot of hype attached to the thing when it came out, you know, big spread and Rolling Stone and all that thing like that. It really kind of blew my mind, all of that. But anyway, uh, we toured until we couldn't tour anymore. And somebody said, well, what do we do now? And somebody else said, well, make another album. (laughs) And like it wasn't even a year after the first one. But uh, rather than shrink from the challenge of that or say, "Well, well, I just... I, I thought, wow, yeah, let's make it. I love making records. Let's make another record. So, and I thought to myself, this time I'm going to do everything according to my own wishes. I'm not going to, you know, like do the layered guitars. I'm not going to do that. This other thing that I got talked into doing or got forced to do, not doing any of it. So that was field day, you know, and I knew I wanted to work with Steve Lillywhite specifically knew that I wanted to work with him because I heard his records in the clubs. The DJs would play the records over these big ass sound systems like generals and majors by XTC and I will follow by U2 and like Hong Kong garden by Susie and the Banshees. And I just, you know, I heard something cause I was, I really wanted to kind of go larger than life, you know, like a lot of the records that I love that are my favorite records they have this kind of otherworldliness to them, this larger than life quality. I'm thinking of like, uh, I'm a King B, Slim Harpo. If you know that record, it's like, what planet did this come from? <laughs> or, uh, you know, I've loved Bo Diddley since the first time I ever heard him. All those records, you know, real bottom heavy and just sound like they came from outer space. Phil Spector, I mean, I know his name is like a curse word anymore and all that stuff like that, but I really was hardcore in love with those records. I still listen to them. And what Steve was doing, I just said, I can harness this, you know? So I sought him out and he hadn't really done anything at that time at all. The only thing he'd done in America was he did a record with a, a band from Atlanta called The Brains. And that was it. It was like really successful in England, nothing in America up to that point. But I heard the stuff that he was doing. And so, you know, he came over and saw us play at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. That was an amazing night. 
like a peak night of my life, really. Um, and yeah, he said, sure. And he was the only producer I talked to, you know, he was the one I wanted. I asked him, he said, yes, done, you know, <laughs> so off we went. And then the engineer, I don't know if you know who the engineer was, but it was Scott Litt. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, Scott, think I, that he, I don't think I realized that he engineered that album. I knew him from the DBs at that point, you know, like he'd done repercussion, the yeah. DBs, and then went on to Katrina and the Waves and then REM famously. But uh, yeah, no, his stuff sounds very clean too. Scott is a real, you know, really talented. It was, I mean, it was a, like a dream team with those two guys, you know, and with myself too, because I was very much in the mix of the whole thing. And uh, maybe too much some of the time, but. Anyway, that's what we did. We went into the power station. And what I loved about the power station is that unlike the record plan at that time, the power station had tons and tons of tube equipment. It was very rare at that time. You just didn't see it that often or, or hardly ever. But they had racks and racks of it. And so that's another thing that kind of is part of the sound of field day is all that tube equipment. I remember when that album came out and, you know, it's great songs on there and, uh, and I remember the reviews of it. There was there was a lot of discussion about the production of it, and you listen to it now, and you're not like like oh my god, this is like this crazy '80s production. But at the time, people seemed to draw more attention to like the drum sound and the Lily White thing. Did you did you feel like that was like where the hell's that coming from? Yes, I did. I just thought this is such asinine nonsense. You know, all the negative things people said about it. I thought we're completely lame you know I, one review i still re just remember the opening to it first line in the review the guy said marshall crenshaw is a rock and roll conservative <laughs> and then went on to expand on that thought you know and i'm like i'm a what i mean you listen to the record right and now you're calling me, what do you know about me? Nothing, you know? So I'm just like, I'm still angry about what happened with Field Day, actually. I never did get over the anger. There's this other version, what, it was an EP that had, like, remixes. Were you, did you sign off on that, or was that the record label coming in, or, like, where did that, that come from? Well, that was the manager I had at the time. That was something he cooked up. He's just trying to get people in Burbank to like us more. <laughs> That's all. You know, but I mean, I didn't I, I, I didn't have anything to do with the EP. I knew I knew it was happening. I'm just like, but, yeah, fine. I don't even care anymore. Honestly, I, I just was like so overwhelmed by all the business stuff that if I said, fuck it, I don't even care anymore. Well, it's funny because you said that you, you sort of felt like you weren't sort of involved enough on the business side. But on the other hand, it seems like the business side messes you up artistically because you start thinking about that and then you're not like concentrating on just being this great songwriter anymore because you're you have this sort of looking over your shoulder a little bit at you know what's happening on the corporate side yeah i mean you know, you know so i have to take the responsibility for all that but that is what happened i just like my sister-in-law my brother robert's wife is a dog trainer and she says that it's your job as a dog owner to set your dog up for success <laughs> and that's what i didn't i didn't do that for myself you know, I did the music and the songs, all that stuff. All of it has had longevity because it's great and it's because it's well thought out and well executed. But all the other stuff, I just like I, it was a buzzkill to me to think about it or to hear about it. So I just didn't address it. I couldn't. You know, I just wasn't capable at the time. I, I learned I learned pretty quick how the what the business was and how it worked. And uh you know, I got it, uh, but and all that, you know, but I just like, I didn't know enough going in, you know, like wanted us, I wanted us to have hit singles, but I just had no idea how hit singles happened in the real world. I didn't know anything about it. It would have, it would have done me maybe some good to know <laughs> in advance, or maybe I would have just like, don't tell me that. <laughs> well, yeah. you wrote whenever you're on my mind, what else were you supposed to do? And I don't, it seems to me that if you write and record the great hit single, it's not also your job to get it out into the world. Like, what do you think you did wrong? Well, you know what, though it is, I mean, cause people, nobody bumbles their way through the business and has a good result that way. Nobody does, you know, it's not people's part of public image necessarily that, that they're business conscious, but I, you know, I've seen enough uh, various 
people's up front to know what their behind the scenes deal is, you know, and they all, they all understood the ones I'm thinking of who, who really did well, they knew what business they were getting into and they were really serious about it. And when I saw that, how they were, I was like, Oh, you know, I mean, anybody that really, there's gotta be at least somebody in the organization somewhere who really knows what's going on. It takes it seriously, but there was kind of nobody in my, in my group that, that had a clue or wanted to have a clue. So what would you or whoever in your group have done to make whenever you're on my mind a hit or that or field day a hit album? What would we have done? Yeah. Like what was the thing that you you didn't do that could have changed? Oh, you know, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to go into all that, but there's a book you can get (laughs) called Hitman. I read that. Okay. Well, that's a long time ago, but yeah, it was a while ago. That was my time period when I, it's, it's got a thing in there about, about Warner brothers records during that time period. Just what the the business, you know, what the business environment and the, all that stuff like that. Anyway, it seems to me, and this is just me being idol- idealistic, and I've talked to enough musicians who went through the same sort of thing. Unfortunately, that like if you make a great record, it's like the reason you have a label is because they're supposed to support it and and get it out. Because they, you know, they do yeah. when they sell a million copies of something, they take most of that anyway. So it behooves them to have the hit singles, and too many, too much great work kind of slips through the cracks but well that's uh, that's that's life though you know it's just like there's only so many slots and if you want one you got to fight for it and you got to know how to fight for it that's all i mean i get all that i've I've had hits as a songwriter i just my own recording career didn't take off the way i wanted it to but there were lots of good outcomes from that time and i'm like super proud of that whole thing, you know, that just that we got from point A to point B and beyond. I'm really proud of that. And all. So, so that is, in, is cool. You know, I, I'm not, I'm all, I'm just as answering your, your questions and really trying to give real answers, you know, but I'm not, that. none of it is complaining. I'm not complaining about anything. So intervention records did a re-release of field day uh, with, you know, newly remastered and, uh, your, your approved cover. Cause I guess the original cover was not what you had <laughs> bargained for. Um, right. Are you doing another sort of broad re-release of that album? Like you did for the first one? Yes. I'm when I, I made a licensing deal with Yep Rock for my first two albums. We might go further after that perhaps, but uh, anyway, yeah, there's a reissue of field day, a really beautiful one uh, that comes out in July. Which so it's two in on one year, one? folks. Uh, it's all completely different. You know, the, the artwork is new. It, it, you know, it kind of vaguely resembles the earlier artwork. But uh, for the front cover, the guy, the art director, David Gorman is his name. He uh, took a poster that the label did for the record back then, which has this profile shot of me. And it's kind of a, <laughs> you know, the kind of tongue in cheek thing where I'm standing there, like looking up at the sky, you know, that's the front cover of field day now. Nice. The original cover, it was something where they threw it together. You were like, what? And and then they said, well, it'll delay the release to the album. If you had to change it, something like that. Yeah, that's what happened. Let's see, Robert, we finished the record and uh, you might like this story. Like the last thing we did was the song, hold it, which is the last song on the album. And I like by that time, my mind, I'm mentally exhausted from trying to write songs really fast. And like, I just, I, I go in the studio when I don't have any lyrics. And the other thing is, we have to finish that night too, because I got to go someplace the next day or that night. I think I had to go someplace. And then Steve had to go someplace too. So it was like that was the day that we had to finish the album. So we had the backing track, but just drums and guitar. I played bass on it. The bass I played was Bernard Edwards' Bernard Edwards's bass. Oh, nice. Yeah. Anyhow, I played that bass, put that on. I did the background vocals where I'm going, oh, and then finally it's like, okay, I can't put it off anymore. I got to do the lead vocal. So I went out in the, in the studio and I just quickly wrote a verse and then I put that on and then they comped it. And then I just 
sat at the piano and quickly wrote another verse. Same thing. And then at the very end, we decided to do this kind of dub mix thing with all these wild echoes and stuff like that. Because I was really, really crazy about, you know, uh, King Tubby and all that kind of stuff that I heard on WLAB, WLIB, all those dub mixes from Jamaica and stuff. And Steve knew how to do it, so we did it, you know. We finished the record, and then after that, we went on vacation. My brother Robert, at the time, his girlfriend, her father was in the film business, and international film distribution. So he got her a job on uh, the production of the film Amadeus. Ooh over in uh, Czechoslovakia, Milos Forman. So Robert was going to go over there to visit her. And as soon as I heard he was going, I, I just said, Iona and I are going to come, okay? You don't mind, do you? <laughs> so we booked, you know, we all booked tickets to go over to Czech. I wanted to go, you know, and see what it would be like. And uh, that was a pretty amazing experience. But anyway, it was like a, a, vaca- a much-needed vacation and a real just mind blower too and then I got back from that and I saw the artwork that my then manager had cooked up and I was just like you gotta be kidding me you know <laughs> don't you know any better than to put this out but uh, anyway he just said you know you can't, if you delay it then it's gonna cause problems so again I, I said before that I was like really very haphazard about the whole business side of things and so I just said oh, okay I'll go fine put it out and that was a terrible thing for me to do. I just never, it just was, and you know, there's really nice pictures of me from back then, but that one I don't like. Big as life, you know, like my head looks like a light bulb, you know, on the <laughs> front cover of the, I, I just hated it, you know, but I let it go, I let it go out. And it bothered you forever. Yeah. And I'm just like, so when, inter, when I heard that Intervention was going to do their reissue, first of all, I was delighted that Field Day was going to get some love in that way and be acknowledged like that. And I appreciated it, you know, and I said, you know, can you do me just one favor? <laughs> and uh, they said, sure. You know, so we used the uh, front cover of the picture sleeve whenever you're on my mind for that album cover. But this time around, David just, you know, started from scratch and we got photographs. I didn't know that these even got taken, but there were photographs that Yvette Roberts took at the power station while we were in there, she actually had pictures from the sessions. And uh, and also she took pictures at an after party that we had for the album. I didn't know any of this stuff existed, right? But we got all that stuff. And uh, I, anyway, I, the, the reissue of Field Day is especially nice. I'm really looking forward to having that come out. I'm looking forward to it too. And then after that, you're, you did Downtown with T-Bone Burnett. And yeah. everyone's like, oh, he's gone rootsy uh because everyone was talking about you had to use that that term at that time was he your choice to produce the next album or like how did that come about i liked t-bone you know and uh, i was fine with the choice i liked t-bone's solo records at that time yeah this one trap door that i loved oh yeah the whole exercise of making downtown was uh, my manager is trying to figure out how to get burbank to like us more because we never had any problems with our New York A&R person. She and I, you know, got along really great. It was like two separate companies almost. The Burbank thing was a different culture, a different place. Yeah, Burbank's where the main Warner Brothers is based, the whole movie studio as well as the label. Yeah, that's really true. That's the epicenter of it. That's where they're located. So that's kind of what downtown was. But, you know, I, 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 I wasn't like a... I was never like a pushover. I always, you know, really tried to make the best of whatever the situation was. And I liked T-Bone too, you know. So, you know, he, we just did that record. That's what we did. Do you look back on that record with affection or do you feel like it's the first two albums and then you're not as, you know, attached to the next three? The first two albums, I'm in like this one has like a particular headspace at that time where I'm, I'm just I'm just coming off of the whole thing of well the the the, the first two albums are well it's, you know it's like it's chapter one and chapter two of my time at warner brothers chapter one is the first two albums chapter two is the other three that's all you know there it's just a different world that i'm in 
when I was doing third, four, three, four, and five. But I still always put my heart into it, you know, 100%. Tried to do the best I could win in whatever situation I was in. So was the second chapter different because of sort of the business stuff interfering with your sort of emotional feelings about what you were doing? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I asked to get dropped from the label after field day. I had a private meeting with the two head honchos at the label and made what I thought was this airtight case for why they should kick me out of there. But they didn't want to do it. You know, they wouldn't do it. So I was I had to make three more albums for them. And like I said before, you know, I never really did get over the anger after field day. But I had to pretend like I was over it. So that's hard to do. You know, it kind of clouds your can cloud your thinking. Right. But again, I'll say it over and over again. I, I still did my best and tried to and I put my heart into it. And there's great stuff on all of my albums. No matter what, you know, even the film of mine that I really don't like at all. <laughs> a couple songs on them. That is our Which brain. one is that? The ones Which I don't is- like are uh, Good Evening, my last album for Warner Brothers. Right. That was my guess, but I didn't want to. That's one of them. I'm not going to say what the other one was because we hurt somebody's feelings. And I'm not going to do it. But huh. anytime where I'm trying to sound like I'm trying to think, oh, how can I get the, how can I get on rock radio? Anytime I'm doing that. To me, that's wrong. I, you know, like I never should have been having to think that way. And it's my own fault that I did. That's all. Life's Too Short was the album that came after Good Evening. And that mm-hmm. was Good Evening had a bunch of covers on it. Life's Too Short was really back into the land of originals and kind of yeah. a more more rocking record at the time. Were you happy with that one? Yeah, I, you know, I love Ed Stasium. He's still a good friend. It was great working with him. Yeah, sure. And, and then you had, uh, and then you had uh, these albums for Razor and Tie, uh, Miracle of Science, number four forty-seven, and What's in the Bag. Did you? What was? What was your headspace for? I don't know if that's chapter three or chapter four, but you're mm-hmm. you're working for a smaller label, and presumably that Warner Brother kind of pressure is off of you. Like, how did those feel to you? Yeah, it's completely off at that time. I, I felt like I got back on track with those two albums. Because uh, uh, it was just me, you know, I was kind of back where I started. They're mostly home recordings, different, equ- better equipment, you know, expensive microphones and all that kind of stuff. But by that time, I, you know, had bought some for myself. Two things. One was till I hear it from you. So there's a there's a hit single that you co-wrote, but it was a hit for the Gin, gin Blossoms. And I've yeah. read the story about how you guys did that together. Is mm-hmm. that is that cool that you you hear that? Like when you heard that for the first time, was that how you expected the song to come out? Uh, I was, it was like a real joy, you know, that whole thing. Yeah. That was magical. It was really, really nice. Very (laughs) well-timed, you know? And the last time I saw you, aside from the opening day thing was you were playing with smithereens at the Skokie, uh, summer fest. You seem like you're having a really good time. Are you still doing the smithereen stuff? And how is that sort of parachuting into another existing band and not having, you know, all the weight on your shoulder with your own stuff? Yeah, I do really like doing it. It's lots of fun. They make it real, real easy for me all the time. No pressure at all. No, nothing at stake emotionally for me. And so it's like a, you know, it's like a vacation and they're a great rock and roll band too. That's the other thing is I'm up there to play with Dennis and, and Mike and, and Jimmy, and they just really are a great band to play with. It's very exciting to play with, with, with Dennis and those other guys. (laughs) I love it. Would you guys ever write new smithereen songs together? I don't think so. I mean, Jimmy saying from the start that he wants to do it, but I don't think we ever will. And I don't, you know, it's not my thing. Do you see yourself um, doing any other albums coming up? Myself? No, I don't. But that doesn't mean I won't, you know, it's just not on my mind right now. I'm not going to talk about this because I put a moratorium on talking about it, but I'm I'm doing a film project. I've been making a documentary since 2016. That's all I'm going to say. But that's really, uh, uh, until that's done, that's really what I'm doing. All right. Well, I look forward yeah. to seeing, hearing more about that and seeing that and hearing the field day uh, reissue this summer. Um, 
Thanks so much, Marshall Crenshaw. This is a total treat for me. I appreciate you uh, talking through all this stuff, going down little detours with me as well. Thanks a whole lot. It was, I, I dug it too. It was really great. That's it for episode 77 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Marshall Crenshaw for being so open about his career and for writing so many songs that have gotten stuck in my head over the past 40 plus years. Seriously, my brain has been like a Marshall Crenshaw k ad since I began work on this episode. Yep Rock Records recently released the 40th anniversary expanded edition of Marshall Crenshaw's self-titled debut on CD. The vinyl version came out last year on Black Friday Record Store Day. This edition has his preferred mastering. This summer, look out for the expanded edition of Crenshaw's second album, Field Day, which features new album art. It's also on Yep Rock. Go to marshallcrenshaw.com for information about upcoming shows and projects. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who delivers Monday Morning Rock, Tuesday Morning Rock, and Rest of the Week Rock. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you can hear about upcoming episodes and events. We promise not to spam you. Please share, subscribe, and tell your friends. And tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.